Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Review to Does Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Simone Tillman, if I pronounce that right. And uh, we're here to talk about the effect on stratospheric ozone. Welcome to the show. Yes. Hi, did I get your uh, name right? I'm never quite sure whether it's Simone or Simone, and I'm never quite sure whether it's Tilms or Tilmers. I say Tilmers. So you said that. Tilmers. We, yeah, that was correct. Okay. Is it Simone with an E or is it Simone? That is up to you. In the German way, I say Simona. In the English way, I say Simone. So whatever you want. And so it's fine. Simone is good. Okay. Surely good. I think you probably have one of the most mispronounced names in our field. So, well, thank you for coming on the show. And could you start by giving us the title, the paper that we've come on to discuss? Yeah, yeah. The title is Stratospheric Ozone Response to Sulfate Aerosol and Solar Dimming Climate Intervention based on the G6 Geoengineering Model Intercomparison Project Geomap Simulations. Okay, so if I could just praise what I understand, so the Geomap is about taking a bunch of climate models and then doing various different types of geoengineering treatment to them to see how the model responds, right? And see if the models all give the same answer or different answer. Yes. In this paper, you've done, you've done two different types of experiment. One in which you just turned down the sun, so you just had a little bit less sunshine in the model. And then the other one where you've actually put in active aerosols behave in a you know, quasi-sensible manner uh, in, in the model. And then to see how things differ when you've got representations of actual aerosols, right? Yes, that is correct. And in detail, the experiment, the G6 experiment, is using... So all the models use the same future scenario, which is the SSP 8.5, that's the high forcing greenhouse gas scenario as a baseline. And then the solar dimming or the injection is applied in order to get temperatures to the medium forcing scenario. So basically reduce the warming from the high end to a moderate end scenario, the SSP245 scenario. So the goal is all the same for the models, bring the temperature down from the high forcing to the medium forcing in two different ways, either solar dimming or using sulfur or um, AOD to reduce Basically, the reflectivity of the sun to, yeah, to turn to cool the climate. Yeah, so AOD is aerosol optical depth, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Correct. The aerosol optical depth. Can you, can you sure. explain to me what aerosol optical depth actually means? Because I kind of have an intuitive understanding of what it means, but I couldn't define it. Okay. So basically, it's meaning how thick or how much aerosols you have in the whole atmospheric column that basically is able to reflect sunlight. So the more aerosol, the cleaner the the atmosphere, the smaller is the aerosol optical depth. That means it reflects less sunlight back. It also scatters differently. And so basically that's kind of the measure. It's the total, like how much thickness of, of aerosols is in the atmosphere in simple terms. And so if you increase aerosols in either the stratosphere or the troposphere, you change the aerosol optical depth. So 
So it, when I'm thinking of depth of aerosols, I'm, I'm thinking if, if every aerosol in the atmosphere was squished into a single layer, then it would be the thickness of that layer. That's how I kind of think about yes. it. If I look over my head and think of all of the aerosols up to space, right. uh, every little bit of dust and things like that. So the, the average depth of an aerosol layer, in, in, you know, if you just look up in the sky above you, right now, then what would a typical value for aerosolical depth be? Would it be like a millimeter or? Uh, it's not in millimeters. It's a measure that is not, doesn't have a unit. It kind of is a fraction. So if you have one, then it's super thick. And if you have zero, then there isn't any aerosol. So it's basically in there, in between that range. But what does, but what does the one mean? Like what would a, what would a day okay, or a planet look so like? Basically, no sun coming through. Okay, so that would be like a complete attenuation. Like, so it, it, yeah, uh, is, it's almost like so. a, dim, a dimming constant, right? Yeah, I mean, if you have a buff one, I, I don't know exactly if that's completely dimming, but if you have zero, then you would have no aerosols interfering with the optics, basically. So it's, it's, it's more like a kind of dimming coefficient as opposed to like a physical depth, like the depth of the swimming pool, right? Right, right. So basically, when we look at this geoengineering part, if you don't have additional aerosols, and then you add aerosols, you get an increase in the AOD. And for example, in these experiments that we are talking about here, we're increasing the AOD up to like 0 0.25 to 0.4. So you can see that you that's kind of the measure of what we are talking about. Well, that still sounds like quite a lot of um, increase if, if if a one would be complete attenuation. It feels like we're, you're adding, firstly, there's quite a lot there already. Yeah, I, that's why I say I'm not sure about the one, actually. I cannot give you that 100%. I would have to look back. I don't know. But I'll, I'll have to. We'll have to get. Some, we'll have to ask another one of our guests if they can define it for us. Because I, yeah. I have looked it up. It's not just laziness. I just haven't found anybody that can actually explain. It. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so you've got these two systems, or is it three systems? So you've got one that deals with solar dimming, one that deals with aerosol optical depth, and then one that deals with actual modelled particles in the stratosphere that's got no. aerosol transport in it. Is that right or not? No. Well, all the models are able to dim the sun. They simply you know, turn down the solar constant in their model. But then the question is really, how do models describe aerosols? And some, and some models inject, aeros inject sulfur, like two of the three models that I compared. They inject sulfur, they form aerosols. And then from those aerosols, you get the measure of aerosol optical depth. So basically, it's just the result of the injection. But one model, we have some models that can do that, and they do just simply prescribe quantities like AOD. And that's why we look at AOD at aerosol optical depth. But this, this is all that one experiment to have aerosols. It's just a different way how models can actually realize aerosols in the stratosphere. So are you saying that the, the turning down the sun, the solar dimming, are you using the aerosol optical depth to turn down the sun or are those two separate processes that you're describing? No, it's the turning down the sun is simply in the model to say not the sun is not coming into that percentage. 
But okay. if, if you change the AOD, you practically assume, and then the models change things in there in the stratosphere to assume four aerosols. So they basically simulate it like as, as okay. they had injected aerosols. But not all okay, so, do all so that. Even, so even if the handling of the aerosol simulation isn't very sophisticated, a model where you're tuning aerosol optical depth to represent solar geoengineering is going to be a bit more sophisticated than one where you're just turning down the sun, right? Yes, and they usually also include processes that from, from those changes, they say, okay, I can then infer from this what the heating is of these aerosols. So there's a radiative scheme that takes into account these things. And then it says, okay, aerosols, and that's the main difference. If you turn down the sun, you'd simply turn down the sun, but there is no effect of the aerosols themselves on the stratosphere, neither in terms of light scattering, because turning down the sun doesn't scatter the light or reflect it, or through absorption of the aerosols. The aerosols absorb because, and that is usually then simulated in all of these models that include then the aerosols. So G3 sulfur, in no, no matter how the models prescribe the aerosol distribution, take into account the heating, so the absorption of the aerosols and the optical properties. That's the difference. So G, G, G3 sulfur is the one that you... Um, that you modeled, right? And then you had G3 Solar. Yes. My understanding is that the names of the two scenarios, one where you just turn down the sun and all the models can do yes. that. And then and you've got that, G3 self, Sulfur, which is only some of the models can do that, right? Right. So the difference is Sulfur means aerosols affect the stratosphere, the properties of radiation and chemistry. And Solar, there are no aerosols basically there. We're just turning down the sun as if we would have put shields in the Lagrangian point or something, some solar shields. So then, but can you can you clarify for me? Because I've always wanted to understand how turning down the sun actually works. Because the aerosol layer is relatively thicker the poles, just because of geometric effects, right? So as you look at the sun from the poles, you're looking through more atmosphere because the sun's lower in the sky. And so even if you assume a thick uniform aerosol layer, which wouldn't happen, um, then you're still going to have you're turning down the sun more at the poles than you are at the equator. Turning down the solar constant itself doesn't make any difference to distribution. So do you have a kind of graduated mask so that the, the poles are attenuated, the sunshine coming into the poles is attenuated more than the sunshine coming in at the equator, or does it just ignore that? Um, when you turn down the sun, well, you basically actually have a larger effect at the equator. Because when you turn down the sun, you only affect changes in the, on the atmosphere at the surface when the sun is actually shining. And the sh sun is only shining constantly during, in the, during, at the equator. While at yeah, the I, un I understand that. But I understand that the absolute amount of radiative flux right. so can be higher at the equator because the sun's brighter. But what I mean is like the relative amount of sunlight coming through. If you have a constant aerosol layer, so if that... If you imagine the world, the world is wrapped in a pair of tights, right? So you, when you looked up into the sky, you'd see this pair of tights over your head rather than seeing straight into the sky. And then as you, if you were looking from the pole, if you were standing on the North Pole and looking at the sun, right, then you would be looking through a thicker layer of tights because you'd have to, you'd be looking through more of the atmosphere 
and therefore you're although although you're getting less solar radiation than somebody on the equator because it's the North Pole, so it's, it's a colder and less well lit place. That the amount of radiation that you would have got that you've lost. Yeah, I mean that's not at all part of this paper, but in general, if you are at the pole and you are in the summer, the sun is right above you. Still, yes, you have a little bit less. You do see a longer path to the sun, obviously, and there is more, say, larger reflectivity, maybe, and maybe a little bit more dimming, but that's not, I mean, those effects very much less than the amount of sunlight that will actually affect those places. So it's still so that if you would have a homogeneous aerosol layer, and that depends on, again, how much the aerosol layer will actually reflect the sunlight. Uh, if it's somewhat more in the higher latitudes, since you have much less sunlight over the year, it still has less of a cooling effect because of the amount of sunlight you're actually getting there. So that's the major effect. I think there's maybe some little effect on what you're describing, but I don't think that's really... Yeah, but at least I don't know if anybody has quantified it in this context much yet. What you're saying is that the sun is turned down equally everywhere, even though there might be differences in real in real life as to how much of that dimming actually occurs. You're just so in the model, if you dim, way, yeah. right? In the model, if you dim the sun, if you turn down the sun by very few percent, like four percent at most. That's when you get a huge, then you get a cooling and that will be most effective in the tropics because the sun is simply shining mostly in the tropics and less effective in high latitudes. If you do, an, if you place more cool, that's what we are not doing, but you could theoretically also dim the sun more at the poles, you can get a more even cooling, but you would have to dim more at high latitudes. Because the tropics is just much more affected by the dimming of the sun. It's the incoming sun, and it only acts when the sun is actually there. So um, you described the changes earlier from the stratospheric aerosols. You get a scattering effect, and you get heating effect from the sulfur aerosols. Now, I, the scattering effect is very significant if you have crop models in your or, or carbon models that include the biosphere, because there's a really big effect on the... Um, on the plant growth from a change in the amount of diffuse light. So were there models that you're, you were using, did they take into account the plant growth or not? Yes, but what I'm focusing on is basically the stratospheric ozone. And if the plants grow or not, it's not that important here. The focus of this paper is on what are the changes in the stratospheric ozone and also in the heating. And so, yeah. The models usually interact with the biosphere. If you do scatter sunlight, you do get a different growth that will change plants and the biosphere, but it doesn't matter much for this study. Okay, so the aerosols are obviously a direct impact on the ozone because they're physically in the ozone, right? They're in, they're in the ozone layer in the stratosphere. So I would, I'm struggling to understand how turning down the sun would tell us anything useful about what happens to ozone. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so it's not really that turning down the sun may tell us something on the ozone. It doesn't give us the response that we would get if we'll actually use aerosols in the stratosphere. And you can see this in this paper. But 
if you just as an analog, since we talk about it, if you think about aerosols that people want to design that are different from sulfur, that would not heat the stratosphere or would even not interact at all. And then you could almost see that the solar dimming could be an analog for very inert aerosols. So it is still of interest. The other thing we can say is, what if we would put place mirrors into space? How different is that from aerosols? But I agree, aerosols have a very different effect on ozone than if you just turned on the sun. Okay, so you're thinking of the solar dimming, the G- G3 solar experiments being uh, essentially like a control run, and then you've got an experimental run where you're using models that can resolve the effect of the aerosols and give you a more direct understanding of how this impacts stratospheric chemistry and stratospheric um, uh, heating. I mean, yeah, I guess not, even if you it's had... Not, it's not really a control run. It's just a different run. It's two runs. And the, the interesting part is really we want to understand... You can understand the processes because if you... First, you have your, your, your just normal future scenario. And then, you know, if you add aerosols, it does both. It dims the sun, but it also adds the addition to the effects of the aerosols. It can start understanding different processes if you do both of those different experiments as well. Okay, so describing the idea of having these engineered particles that don't have any direct chemical interaction with ozone, surely they would still heat up the stratosphere because they're going to absorb a proportion of the light that strikes them, right? So... Could you just explain how that works? The absorption, well, it's that sulfur particles absorb in the infrared and the also shortwave radiation. That means they basically heat the surrounding air. And heating of the surrounding air gives you a perturbation in the temperature in the lower tropical stratosphere. And the interesting thing is, well, yeah, so the interesting thing in this study is if you have six models that we looked at, and they all kind of have a little bit different aerosol distribution, but they show very large uncertainty in how much heating is actually produced depending on how much change in aerosols you impose to the stratosphere. And that is an so the, very interesting result of this study. So the degree to which the temperature impacts um, change model to model. There's little consistency on stratospheric temperature based on the um, uh, the individual. Like, so one model can take the same scenario and then give you a very different result on stratospheric heating. Is that yes. because the aerosols are distributed spatially in a different way, or is it just because the maths in the model is done differently and they just process the result in a different way? It is all of it. It's the distribution is different. It is that. The distribution and the mass is different, and the mass is the factor that really controls the heating. But then it's the heating scheme itself, the radiative scheme in the model. And there's even one more thing. We found that if you have models with interactive chemistry, because ozone is changing, and ozone itself, the changes to the chemistry from the seeding and from the aerosol themselves change ozone, and ozone itself is a gas that absorbs. And that means changes in ozone cause heating itself. We see that there are differences if you have a model that has interactive chemistry or not, how large the heating is. 
So it's very much so manufactured. Could you just clarify that for me? So the ozone causes heating, but is that because ozone is a greenhouse gas, which yes. I think it is, or it is, is it because it directly absorbs the sunlight that would otherwise pass through no, no, it's the like atmosphere? No, no, it's greenhouse gas. Okay. But also yeah. ozone does directly, because it absorbs UV, yeah. right, then it would also heat the stratosphere, and that's what causes the stratification of the stratosphere, right? That's why the stratosphere is the stratosphere, because ozone directly absorbs radiation. So I'm trying to understand whether the heating effect of the stratosphere that you're seeing is predominantly governed by the outgoing longwave radiation or the incoming shortwave radiation. So what, what is ozone primarily causing heating because of? I think it's the long wave radiation, but I think there's also somewhat in the short wave. I don't remember exactly, but it is certainly the long wave radiation. Yes. So the, the greenhouse gases, actually, you can also, I mean, there are other greenhouse gases as well, like water vapor, that any changes to water vapor also change, basically, the heating. And so there are, there are many components. It's a very coupled system. And if you get a difference in temperature in the stratosphere from aerosols between 5 to 13 Kelvin per injection, then you wonder, so then you need to figure out what is the reason for those differences. And it's not yet quantified exactly. So we still have to reduce this uncertainty, this large uncertainty, before we can actually say how much the stratosphere warms. And the reason why this is important is that a heating perturbation in the stratosphere, in the lower tropical stratosphere, does various things. It changes the transport in the stratosphere. That means the composition and also ozone is moved around and changed. But it also has been shown that the heating in the lower tropical stratosphere can change rainfall rates locally at the surface. For example, we have shown at least in one model, but there is also a study in other models that indicate that heating will cause, for instance, changes of the Asian monsoon precipitation. The more heating you get, the more you kind of interact also with the surface and impacts. That's an important part. Okay, so monsoon disruption has been historically something that people have worried about a great deal with geoengineering. Are you saying that your current study suggest that monsoon disruption is a significant factor? And if so, is that universal across all models or is that only true in certain models? No, our paper, sorry, our paper does not refer to the monsoon at all. But I'm just saying that other papers have pointed out the connection between the heating and monsoon reduction. And when we find this large range of heating with these models, then this is something that is very important to consider and, and study more. So there's more need to study this large uncertainty to understand how much heating would we actually get if we want to put a specific amount of cooling, if we want to achieve a specific amount of cooling. We don't know. So what you're saying is that a large amount of variation in the lower troposphere, the lower stratosphere heating means that down in the troposphere, you're going to have direct effects, yeah. uh, sort of indi indirect effects, but ones that are di have a, a much more directly appreciable impact on humanity. So if your rains fail and your crops don't grow, then that's a really big deal. You're very directly impacted by that. But you're saying that the models disagree to an extent where it's very difficult to ascertain what the real result is. Is that Yes. Exactly. That is one of the uncertainties that we still have to resolve if we really want to know what the impacts are. Okay. And um, do you 
uh, do the models react in a traceable way? I mean, like a lot of machine learning, for example, you can't really tell why the machine has made the decision it's made. So can you look at the model output and say, oh, well, it's done this and that, and here's why? Or is it just a case that they become, to some extent, chaotic and you can't really trace from the input changes to the output? You can't really work out why one model did this and the other model did that. You could if you had the right information from the models. So you would have to do more experiments. And because of the complexity, the problem is we have here experiments where models actually injected or, or did something right to increase the aerosol layer. And we know that the aerosol distribution is different, the mass is different. So you could say, okay, there's a different mass, then I get a different heating. But then there's the complication of that the radiative schemes are different and the chemistry reacts differently. So all these components mixed in this study and you can't tell, but you could. And we are already planning studies where you give all the aerosols the exact same aerosol distribution as much as possible because they still do something a little bit different internally. And if you would say, I give a model the exact same aerosol mass and distribution, then we can track it down to why do we get the different heating for that. But since right now we have too many changing things, you can't track it down in this study at least. So you've got models of varying degrees of sophistication and complexity, and the models with the more complexity will react differently from the models yes. with less complexity, right? Yes. And intuitively, you might assume that the ones that are more complexity are more accurate because they're modeling processes that might be missing from the simpler model. So why do we bother with the simple models at all? Or does it, is it just to show how bad they are? Or do they actually turn out results that look more sensible or something? We only, we, I mean, from this whole study, right, GeoMIP, six models participated in this study. And only three models were able to even run with interactive chemistry, while from these three interactive chemistry models, only one model, uh, no, two models could only simulate really the process, the, the microphysics to form aerosols. The other model prescribed an aerosol distribution. The reason why we look at these is because that's what we have. We only have very few models and none, none of the models that I had looked at has all the processes included. All of them have shortcomings. And that's when you later look at the results for ozone, you get some consistency in the what's coming out for ozone, but you also get a range of outcomes that you still don't know what it is until we have more models that have more processes and more complicated processes included. So we are, this is a step towards understanding what is missing in the models. It's not to tell the models it's bad, but it's telling the models, if you don't include specific processes, this may not be a good model for this study. But we, we so, need to first get there. So what of the, of the six models that you're using, I mean, would you say that the results from some of them are just so simplified as to be essentially valueless? They're not really telling you anything of any use. Uh, they all, all of them that have, well, I cannot use those that don't have interactive chemistry if I want to look at ozone. So three of those six are not for me of use if I want to look at response in ozone. Yes. You, you said that ozone chemistry is quite important in terms of the thickness of the ozone layer. It has an effect on the climate. So if 
you can't model these ozone effects, does it then mean that the climate is ineffectively modeled? Yes, that is true as well. Many models, many climate models do not simulate the variability of ozone specifically, but what they do is they assume some kind of fixed climatology or changing ozone that they get from a more complicated model. So many climate models do not do that. And in the broad way, when you look at many scenarios, it's not seemingly that big of a deal, but actually it is showing that if you have interactive ozone, you do, you do, it matters for climate somewhat. So, yeah, but that's just because people or the models cannot afford usually to simulate all this chemistry if they do long climate simulations. And so, yeah, we need to get to better models that have interactive ozone to really, but especially for geoengineering, if you want to look at effects of ozone. But, you know, this is really more the concern here is the effect that if you do have interactive chemistry, if you already see that you may change the heating in the tropical stratosphere, that's one indication that it is important to have chemistry also for climate effects when you look at geoengineering. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always thought that turning down the sun was such a, a weak analog for geoengineering that it yeah. wasn't really worth doing. I mean, Daniele Vizione published a paper which had the question, is turning down the sun an, an adequate analog? And I, from informal discussions I've heard, I think they were trying to put an one-word abstract in that just said, no, but he was persuaded not to do that. And it does have a proper abstract on that paper. But I thought it would have been good if he had done that because it does kind of get across the point. I've always believed that turning down the sun was just not adequate. But what I'm trying to get at fundamentally is the deeper question really are our models we have at the moment, are there any models that we have that are good enough to evaluate cellular geoengineering? Or are we just taking a leap in the dark using the current generation of models? <laughs> Well, I would say in terms of, and that depends on, again, what are we looking at? But I think there are a couple of models that have a lot of processes. And for example, the three models that I looked at, uh, at least two have, you know, quite a bit of processes. They do have the stratospheric processes included. They have chemistry. But when you look at it in detail, they all have some shortcomings. And that doesn't mean that we don't cannot trust the results at all, but that means we cannot say for sure what the effects are. So we get these ranges of outcomes that we have to resolve. I normally sort of personalize things to this extent, but let's imagine that you had a large extended family who are farming in a subsistence environment in one of the world's sort of climate vulnerable regions, right? The Sahel or northern India where they get a lot of heat waves or whatever. I mean, would you trust the current generation of geoengineering modeling to give an accurate uh, insight into what the changes resulting from geoengineering would be such that you would trust your family's safety to the models that we have? Or would you just think, well, it's just hopeless. You know, we need models that are 20 years more advanced than the ones we've got before we could ever start deploying this from a policy point of view. Yeah, I wouldn't trust a outcome of one model in a specific scenario, yeah, because and but, you see that, and that's already. I mean, that's why I wasn't quite. Well, I wasn't quite the question. I'm not asking. I know that a single model run in a single model is not in and of itself trustworthy. What I'm what I'm trying to understand is your view as somebody who's probably 
you know, among the world's leading experts on, on this issue, right? You know, can we trust models as a whole to give us a proper insight into the likely effects of geoengineering such that we can put people's personal safety in the hands of these models? Like, if I crash my car, then I can have a reasonable degree of, of, of understanding, confidence that the design of my car has been sufficiently well informed by finite element analysis to crash in a way which is safer than it would be without that tool because you know they know where to put all the beams and strengthening and crumple zones and stuff in the car now it, all i'm asking is from a climate point of view can we do a broadly similar process with people's livelihoods food supply when we start twiddling and fiddling with the knobs on our geoengineering machine or do we just are we just nowhere close to where we need to be i would say we know certain things and certain things the models give us a consistent answer which is just really roughly yes all the models show that we can cool the surface temperature so if you're concerned about heat waves and you really worry about future heat waves we can say yes all of the, our models confirm that if we do geoengineering we can dim down the sun we can improve heat waves, we can improve those extremes. And that's consistent no matter, even if you just turn down the sun in any way. However, that's one thing, right? You can also say, but you cannot exactly say how much you need to do this. So when you look at this range of heating in the lower tropical stratosphere, we can say, yes, with sulfur, we heat the stratosphere, but we don't know exactly how much. So at this point, and it's the same with future climate change without geoengineering. We know that the climate will be warming, but we have a huge range of what the warming may be. The question is now, uh, how much can you trust the models that predict our future climate, right? We do predict, we do trust the models because certain processes are clearly consistent. And so that's okay, we have some confidence. But if you're talking about a family in a specific location, will there be more flooding? Or will there be less droughts with geoengineering? That you could not say, but you could say roughly the conditions will be improved in this region or there will be not. But how much? That's the big question still. Okay. So, so we have the, some content, right? Yeah, I, I get it. I understand. When you look to a very low level of granularity, then a very fine granularity, then you're going to end up with more uncertainty because you can't right. say, well, okay, you know, my. Uncle Pete's house is going to get warmer or colder or drier or wetter. But when you're looking at a population level, you know, there's an entire, like the Amazon basin or the Sahel belt or whatever, you know, you're going to have a bit more clarity. So I, I understand your point. But you know, reassuringly, you haven't said, well, the models are a disaster and we just know we're close to understanding this. We shouldn't be messing with it, which is, you know, which is where we want to be. I mean, we want our models to operate. I'm not saying that necessarily that means we want to do your engineering, but we'd want to at least know that models are pretty good. I wonder if you could just, Talk to me in a bit more depth about the processes behind the effects on ozone and the and the change in ozone. What, what happens? So, uh, right. My understanding so, is that the ozone is eroded by direct chemistry on the fur, on the aerosol surface, but the amount of UV reaching the ground is not changed by the same amount. And I don't think I fully understand why that is the case. Well, uh, so I guess starting with the changes in ozone. A measure that we do look at is changes in the total column ozone. And that's another measure that is basically 
taking all the ozone molecules and stacking them up in a column. And I think if you do that, you get something like three millimeters of a stack of ozone molecules for the atmosphere. But that's just... Yeah, it's thinner. I remember it being told that it was, the ozone layer is thinner than the sole of your shoe, which is quite an interesting way of thinking about something that is so essential to life. So all the, most of the ozone is in the stratosphere. And that's yeah where you have the stratosphere conditions and it reflects sunlight, the, the UV, incoming UV radiation in a certain wavelength. And if you are changing the thickness of this ozone layer, more of the UV can get through at a certain play, wavelength. And that means that will change what the surface experience. So when you live and the ozone column itself it's not everywhere the same. When you live in the tropics, you have a much thinner ozone column over your head than if you live in high latitudes. And that's why people's skins is different in the tropics. They don't need to absorb as much sunlight so it's darker to get the same vitamin D as people that live in high latitudes that have a lighter skin in order to absorb more of the UV to make more vitamin D production. So there is a balance. Okay, so you're saying, all right, okay, because I didn't know that. So just let me repeat that to see if I understood yeah, correctly. Yes. I, I, just, I just thought it was the tropics were brighter and therefore people got more vitamin D. But you're actually saying there's less ozone over the tropics. And that's why people with historic populations with darker skin evolved right. in like southern India and West Africa, whereas people in northern Europe evolved much paler skin, right? It's, it's actually the exactly. thickness of the ozone layer, not the brightness of the sun that does it, right? Right. And if people from the, from the tropics move to the high north and the skin is much darker, they are not able to absorb as much sunlight as people with a much lighter skin. So this is all evolutionary done for many you know, for, for thousands of years, people's skin and everything has adjusted to the ozone layer that is above them. And in high latitudes, you have a much higher ozone layer, much thicker ozone layer, naturally. And that's because how the transport in the, in the stratosphere works. It pushes more of that, uh, the, the concentration of ozone to the higher latitudes. And that's that by the Brewer-Dobson circulation. Exactly. And that, that is a big factor of changing the column above our head of ozone. Now, what is happening in the past is that we suddenly got an ozone hole with more CFCs in the atmosphere over Antarctica, but we also got a thinner ozone layer in high latitudes and people were getting more skin cancer because suddenly the UV they weren't said they were less sensitive, I mean, more sensitive in high latitudes because the ozone layer had changed on average. Now, what is also in factor though in the 90s and 80s and 90s was that there was more travel of people to the south to go on summer vacation from their northern mid latitudes, and so that also caused skin cancer to increase. Sometimes those effects actually matter both. So you know, this is this is a thing that we as humans, but also animals and especially also plants adjusted over these years of the evolution to the ozone layer where they are situated. Now, if we change the ozone I, I've got a really interesting factoid here, right? That 
I didn't. I, I knew that plants in theory could be damaged by it. I didn't realize a very good practical example is apples. That the redness of a red apple. If you get an apple that's green on one side and red on the other, on the other side, the redness of an apple is actually the equivalent of a suntan on the apple, where the apple is making chemicals to screen itself from the sun and prevent UV damage. So that it has the same sort of practical effect on plants as it does on animals. It's UV damage, which I, I found a, a fascinating little anecdote, basically. So I get what you've said about the um, the ozone layer and how it affects human populations. And obviously, it's been a huge impact on, um, uh, on uh, human evolution. And we all bear the effects of that on our, on our biology. And as the original hunter-gatherer populations of Europe had quite dark skin because they had a meat-rich diet and they didn't need a lot of vitamin D in there from sunlight. But as soon as we started farming arable crops and reducing the amount of meat and fish in our diets, then we need an awful lot more vitamin D from sunlight. And, and as far as I understand, people were, I think it's on the female side, that women are completely unable to reproduce if they have inadequate vitamin D. So it's a very sharp effect. Now, obviously, you know, these effects you sort of see in skin cancer from people going on holiday or from moving to areas where it's affected by the ozone layer, loss, like Australia is pretty notorious for having a problem with that. And you know, historically, we've seen evolution helping human populations to adapt through genetic change. It's obviously a big impact on people's lives, and we need to understand this really well. So can you help me understand the effect on the ground level ozone? Because yeah. I just want to draw your you on this point because my understanding is the ozone degrades on the surface of the stratospheric aerosols but the, the amount of um, uh, ultraviolet radiation reaching the ground does not it's not a simple relationship there there are other factors at play that mean that a geoengineered world won't just be uh, exposed to more uv light because there's other atmospheric effects and i don't fully understand why that isn't a close coupled relationship i'm not exactly sure what if I understand what you mean, I mean also. Well, my, my, well, let me let me re-explain it. So, the, my understanding is that there are some papers that were done a few years ago, about five years ago, that showed that the the amount of UV radiation reaching the ground was yeah. not necessarily going to fall in a geoengineered world, even though ozone degraded by the reaction on the stratospheric particles. And I think it may be because more ozone is produced because of some of the effects that you described earlier. Or maybe it makes the troposphere more cloudy or something like that. I'm not quite sure exactly how it works, but I know that there isn't a simple relationship. That just because geoengineering breaks down ozone doesn't mean you have a, an increase in UV light just from that effect in isolation, because there's a more complex palette of effects that affect ground level radiation. So I wonder if you can touch on that. Well, it's all. It's first of all, the UV is. Yeah, strongly correlated in the amount of ozone above you in the stratosphere. Plus, if you do have scatter of sunlight, then you basically reduce the sunlight itself. So that can counter that effect. And at some places, you may with factually no change because you reduce ozone, but at the same time, you scatter sunlight, and that's not necessarily changing. But then you raise another point, which is the clouds. If you get more clouds, you have less sunlight, obviously, but clouds are also even more complicated because actually, if you have a blue sky and you go out in the sun and you have a sky that I see right now that has patches of white clouds, but you do occasionally, 
often get the sun through, you may get more of a sunburn because clouds themselves reflect too and can actually get you more sunlight because of increased scatter of light. Also, tropospheric aerosols uh, can scatter light more. So actually, the direct beam gets you a certain amount of sunlight. But if you have just tropospheric pollution, you get more scatter, you can get more sunlight on your skin. That's how plants work too. If they get more sunlight, they grow more. So with, you know, this is the complication. It's about direct and scattered light. It's about clouds and it's about the ozone layer that can all matter. However, in this case here, again, I'm just looking at the ozone layer right now (laughs) in this paper. Okay, so the ozone layer, how do stratospheric aerosols affect the ozone layer? You could talk me through the mechanism of ozone formation and extinction in a geoengineered world and draw out the differences between that and a non-geoengineered world. All right, so first of all, if we think of what the effects are on stratospheric aerosols on the ozone layer, we have to first think about what happens without stratospheric aerosol injection or intervention, because that's the main part. We will impose something on top of the climate change. So climate change impacts the ozone layer, and it does it in different ways. It will affect actually the high latitudes and will cause something I would call so so well there is the climate change effect and then there's also the effect of the CFCs in the stratosphere that changes with the future. So if you just think about future ozone evolution without geoengineering, and then we can look, say, at a place where people like to discuss is the ozone hole area, right? So we're in the southern hemisphere, and right now we every year get an ozone hole. But if we do go into the future, since the chlorine is declining, or because we phased out all the substances with the Montreal Protocol and other protocols, ozone will recover. So in the polar region, ozone is very low right now, much lower than what we had before the ozone hole appeared. Now we're expecting that the recovery of the ozone hole in the Southern Hemisphere is happening around mid-century. And that's because the chlorine is slowly removed. But on top of that, it depends on how fast we are recover and what happens after mid-century, we do something like a super recovery. Ozone doesn't just go back to what it was before, it gets actually increased. And that's the, su- the super recovery is because depends on what the greenhouse gases are that we have. So what kind of future greenhouse gas scenario are we follow? I, I hope this is not too complicated. If you follow... Oh, no, it's fine. I mean, people okay. want the complexity, right? It's not a simple process. Right. So no, are you saying that ozone would naturally be more... There'd be more ozone in yes. the greenhouse in world? If you, have, if you have more greenhouse gases, if you do a high-forcing scenario, 8.5, very strong greenhouse gases will actually cool the stratosphere. They warm the troposphere, they cool the stratosphere. The cooling of the stratosphere slows down ozone-destroying substance cycles, and you get more ozone. That's one thing. The second thing is that the cooling, I mean, the heating of the troposphere with a high-forcing scenario also changes the circulation, the borodopsin circulation, the stratosphere, which also increases your ozone in high latitudes. So all that without geoengineering. So why why does the why does the Brewer-Dobson circulation get amplified? 
because you're changing. So the, the driver of the blue dobson circulation is waves in the troposphere and say convection. So, it's, it's, well, so Rosby wave breaking, is that right? Yes. Gravity waves, okay. but convective waves, you're changing convection, you're changing the movement in the troposphere, you get a speed up of the blue dobson circulation in the stratosphere. So the okay. Dobson circulation gets faster, more stuff gets moved to higher latitudes. So just, just to summarize for people who are not so familiar with that, so Rosby waves are body waves that give rise to the jet stream, aren't they? And do they increase or decrease in climate yeah. change? Yeah, they are so increasing. So there is still question, really, <laughs> how the Dobson circulation changes. But the mechanisms are, I mean, in general, understood, the broad Dobson circulation is driven by waves in the troposphere. But then how exactly these change was climate change is still an open question. But most all of the climate models usually show an increase in ozone, I mean, an increase in the circulation strength. So the broad Dobson circulation is in general increasing, but there's still some questions where? Because the Brewer Dobson circulation itself has a lower branch and an upper branch. And it's not clear exactly uh, if, if both of them change the same way. So it's still research in progress. But so there's, well, what, from what I'm picking up from you is that there's actually quite a considerable degree of uncertainty about a number of atmospheric processes. Yes. And the, the geoengineering impacts on top in some ways might reduce and in some ways might increase this uncertainty because obviously the further away you get from your baseline the more that you are uh, drifting away from known circumstances and geoengineering right. to some extent it returns uh, you back towards the baseline and makes it more predictable but on the other hand right, you've got right. a load of complexity of sub-processes where they might be quite poorly understood and you might have some other effects right, right. Really so right Right, right. So in principle, that's true. But if we do cool the surface with geoengineering, you may actually go back to conditions that we are more familiar with, which at least could give us a bit more certainty on geoengineering effects. So now coming back, if you get more ozone in high latitudes, you basically super recover the ozone hole. But in the northern hemisphere, you see a strong increase in ozone. So that's what happens when we put in just no geoengineering, but just cli strong climate change. If we had then strong climate change plus strong geoengineering, right? A lot of now SOAs, stratospheric aerosols in the stratosphere, we heat the lower tropical stratosphere as we discussed. That gives you an additional amount of heating and changes in the circulation and the broad option circulation. And so for the polar region, we do get a reduction in ozone with heterogeneous chemistry, but we can also get an increase due to changes in transport. So there are two mechanisms. And so we'll, we need to talk- so How does geoengineering directly change the transport? I'm not clear on that. I understand how it reduces because basically heterogeneous chemistry is that the surface of the particles themselves are reactive and work to destroy ozone. And, and you might want to give a brief definition of Okay, yeah let's, that start yeah, let's start with the chemistry. So the chemistry is that we have different chemistry, chlorine cycles, ozone-destroying cycles in the stratosphere. And in the lower high latitudes in the lower stratosphere, the chlorine and bromine cycles are most important. And if you increase chemistry, you increase heterogeneous surfaces 
of aerosols, so the surface area density, those reactions basically speed up because you get activation of these allergen components and they will then produce more of these catalytic ozone-destroying cycles. And so, that's specific to sulfur aerosols, right? Because the chemistry of the sulfur aerosol is materially impactful. And if you use something like calcite or titania or whatever, then you wouldn't have the same effect. That, that's the case. Is that, well, is that not? not clear, because if you would include a other aerosol in the stratosphere, and stra- or the stratosphere naturally have sulfate in there from volcanoes, it may all as well coat those particles with sulfate, which could give you the same response. So these questions are still very unclear, what the effects are. But in principle, yes, the reactions to basically activate. So basically the halogens are right now in this stratosphere. They're not everywhere, you know, just causing ozone to deplete, but they are in a reservoir state and they need to be activated. And the activation happens most like strongest in over cold surface in the high latitudes. That's why it's in the polar regions. In the polar region, you get polar stratosphere clouds. These are nice conditions for the activation from a reservoir to a free radical of chlorine and bromine that then can participate in these ozone-destroying cycles. So that's so they, so this geoengineering emulate this polar stratospheric clouds, or does it have a direct influence on polar stratospheric clouds? The polar stratosphere clouds are usually a composition of sulfate and ice clouds. And But if you add more of these particles in the stratosphere, they are usually liquid particles that can also freeze. And the more you add, the more of those polar stratosphere clouds you can form and also other surfaces that in under colder conditions will activate more of these reservoirs. So the activation is really pronounced with more aerosols and high latitudes. And we have seen that, for example, after the eruption of Mount Pinatubo, that you got more ozone loss in both hemispheres when you had more particles. But did you get more polar stratospheric clouds or the aerosols differently distributed? They didn't form defined clouds. They were just kind of everywhere all the time. I, I think that, I don't know if we exactly know, or I don't know exactly if it's mostly forming polar stratosphere clouds or these liquid aerosols. In principle, you can call it what you want, but they are surfaces. So they provide those surfaces because they are more aerosols in whatever form they are, in ice form or in liquid form. Okay. And what about, you're going to talk to me about the transport, the transport changes. One important other chemistry effect is that if you are in the tropics, chlorine isn't that important. What is much more important is the nitrogen cycle. And actually, the nitrogen is there all the time, and there's always nitrogen loss in the tropics, in the middle stratosphere. You have a production of ozone and you have loss, and that's in balance usually. And so certain amount of nitrogen, nitrogen dioxides When you have surfaces, this nitrogen dioxide gets actually moved into a form that it's not anymore, uh, that's basically a non-reactive form. And that way, you basically remove ozone loss cycle and you get ozone production. If you add aerosols in the tropics, you get ozone production. So that's often not discussed, but there isn't only ozone depletion with surface area with geoengineering. There's also an increase 
in the tropics, which isn't that so, strong. So the, so, the, yeah. so, so you, you have a small effect in terms of adding more aerosols. When you add it, more aerosols, that you get nitrogen-based reactions that form more ozone in the tropics. Is that correct? Yes. And they, why does that happen? Reduce, why does that happen in the tropics? Then? So in the tropics, you reduce the nitrogen-based ozone loss reactions and you increase ozone. So in the tropics, you always with geoengineering, you get an increase in ozone usually. Okay. So, and but what what are these nitrogen reactions, and how why do they only take place in the tropics? Well, there's a, there's always a catalytic cycles chemistry loss everywhere, and in some places in the tropics, it's in the mid latitudes. Nox is more abundant in the mid and upper stratosphere, and so that's where the nitrogen cycle is most important. If you add aerosols, uh, you know that's mostly not that much reaching high up. The effect is not so strong as the chlorine cycle that is more important in the lower high latitudes. Uh, why, do, why, the, why, why is there this difference? Is it temperature driven or what? That you have a difference in uh, which of the chemistry regimes is responsible for more of your ozone extinction? I'm not quite sure why. Well, it depends on the distribution of the chemistry itself. Nitrogen is more abundant in the upper to middle stratosphere and in the okay. And uh, so that's why you get that cycle is most important in the middle to upper stratosphere. There's also hydrogen cycles, and those depend also. It, it does depend on the chemist in on the temperature, and it does depend on the chemical composition. And so when you have this is all you know uh, changed when you then add aerosols, you at different places change the importance of different chemical cycles. So I'm never quite I'm never quite sure when we've kind of covered the most salient points of a paper. So, so what, the, what I understand. Yeah. So the most important points now are, and so first of all, the chemistry is different, right? The chemistry is different. The second thing is the transport changes, and if you get a heating in the tropical stratosphere, you move more aerosols from the tropics into the high latitudes. So there are three three things that we get as consistency in the models. One thing, or I guess two main things is in high latitudes, all the models show a reduction in total column ozone with injections. And the more you inject, the stronger is the reduction. However, the magnitude of the reduction is very model dependent because of the differences in how much mass or injection was needed at a certain time. The second thing is, so that's a high latitude to get a reduction especially in the Southern Hemisphere. In the Northern Hemisphere high latitudes, where most people, well, in more like high latitudes in the Northern Hemisphere, that's not where so many people live, you do not, you do not get a conclusive result with the effect of aerosols because there are two competing effects. The one is the chemistry, the reduction in ozone, and one is the transport that increases ozone. And there's large variability and differences in the model that we don't get a conclusive result. And, what, and it's more like no change on average. And the third point is that all the models show actually an increase in ozone with geoengineering in the northern latitudes in winter between 40 and 60 north. That is where a lot of people live. Besides the super recovery that I was talking about, if you do increase the injections of aerosols, you even increase the ozone, you even increase the ozone layer more. 
And that means there's less vitamin D on top of what is already happening with climate change. So, so what is the uh, what is the reason for that increase in in uh, ozone in that in that belt? I don't fully understand that. Yeah. So the main increase is twofold. One that the chemistry in the tropics you get a little bit more ozone from this NOx cycle, but this is mainly a transport effect. The Bordopsin circulation is strongest in winter towards the northern yeah. hemisphere in December, January, and spring. And when you on top heat the lower tropical stratosphere, enhance that transport. Okay, so explain to me again how that transport change occurs. Like so. What is actually pushing this stuff around? So the Bruodobson circulation increases. Yeah, no, you get a basically a temperature gradient. You heat the tropical stratosphere, the lower tropical stratosphere much. And that seems to change the vertical updraft of the wind. So wherever you have the injection points, you inject, you suddenly have aerosols that heat that increases the upward motion of the air masses in the tropics. With that speeds up the word circulation. Okay, yeah, I get that. That's pretty good. So let me just recap, see if I understand that. So you get a direct effect from heterogeneous chemistry, which reduces ozone. Yes. You get a thermal effect, which improve, which uh, creates a sort of powering up of the word circulation, and that increases ozone, but only locally. And then it has changes on the nitrogen extinction of aerosols in the tropics, which again acts to slightly increase the amount of ozone produced. Is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, the nitrogen cycle and the chlorine cycle is all the chemical changes. Yeah. They happen with aerosol surface area density. And then the... How does the... How does the... um, how does the um, nitrogen cycle change? What was the thing that changed the nitrogen cycle? Oh, it just so the nitrogen cycle is changed by by heterogeneous reactions. The same as the chlorine, there is air more surfaces, and that moves basically a reactive nitrogen to a non-reactive nitrogen species. Okay, and is that because there's more NOx in those areas to start with, or is it because the NOx? is affected differently in the tropics? No, it's it's because there's nox, more NOx to start with, and so the effect okay. is stronger on the ozone. And is that natural NOx or is that pollution NOx? Because no, NOx that's does naturally from- there. That's always there. And NOx okay. does change, though. We do N2O, which is, you know, not basically you have N2O, which is in the troposphere also dependent on pollution, that gets photolyzed in the stratosphere and forms NOx. And those that is of course dependent. If you get if you push more nitrogen up in the stratosphere, eventually you increase those things as well. So okay, more so NOx, there's, there's, there's yeah. a human component to it, but it's yes. not dominant. It's mainly natural, right? It is natural, yeah. But we can change that balance too with NOx emissions eventually. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, I'm gonna to have to listen back to this and make sure I understand it all. Are there any elements of this? paper that you think that I've not covered or I haven't you know, fully understood and explored because it's quite complex. This is a pretty detailed, it's not your kind of usual, there are a lot of subjects that get rolled out again and again and again, but this very detailed ozone chemistry stuff is quite unusual. I've not covered it in depth before in any of the work I've done, so I'm very interested to understand how it all works. Is there anything 
you think that we need to cover that we've missed so far or is that pretty much everything? I think just one one point to reiterate about the shortcomings in the models is is really we get different answers in the models often because they are lacking just certain processes. But then we do have a consensus. It's just that the magnitude of really those changes has to be much better explored. And one one troubling thing is that especially for the optic, the models I don't trust at the moment, most of the models, how they respond, only because there's so much yeah, specifics on the dynamics as well as the chemistry and depends very much on specific winters. Are they cold? Are they warm? That this result looks like the effects on ozone isn't very large in principle. But okay, th- so manageable impact, right? Right. It isn't going getting that bad, although it gets, you know, you get some increase, but it's maybe, and that's just not shown here, but it's maybe not worse than what we've seen with the ozone hole. But it does do something to the super recovery that means maybe less vitamin D in the future than we already may expect. But I think what we really need, and you pointed that out, is we need, we need to still more models that have more processes and more complex interactions to really resolve these questions. And more experiments okay. that are more streamlined, more, say, sensitivity experiments to tease out those differences in the models. Okay. Well, that's all been very interesting. I think having praised myself for the complexity of your paper, I'm going to just decline to review, pass this on to a reviewer who has more experience of atmospheric chemistry and stratospheric dynamics than I have, because it's one of the areas that I find probably most confusing about all of the I think I have a fairly good grip on most of the technicalities of both carbon dioxide removal and um, solid geoengineering. It would be kind of difficult to host this podcast if I didn't, because people would just always, like, I just miss half of what was going on in every paper. But I have to say the atmospheric chemistry processes and the transfer dynamics, I really have to uh, think hard to try and keep up with it. So I'm obviously not the best reviewer for this paper. So I'm going to take the very unusual, in fact, unprecedented step of declining to review but thank you very much for coming on the show and i look forward to having you come back correct my ignorance at some point in the future thank you very much well, it was a lot of fun especially talking about things that we i usually don't think about anymore because nobody asks these detailed questions so like so what? what what did i come up with that other people don't ask about <laughs> oh no i mean just explaining aod i don't yeah so those questions certainly weren't answered sufficiently so that's that's good questions that people should answers about that they don't necessarily all the time perhaps everybody else apart from me understands it so okay well fair enough well thanks for coming on i look forward to uh, seeing you again both in person and hopefully on our podcast so thanks for your appearance yeah yeah. for now yeah i probably see you at the gordon conference right indeed thank you very much all right bye bye have a good day Bye. bye